We were thinking earlier in that quiz about um, the way in which the church is growing different parts of the world. In different parts of the world, people have different pictures in their mind of who Jesus, what Jesus might look like and what Jesus is like. This is the sort of picture that you often find in the nursery role in uh, church halls and uh, paints perhaps a rather genteel, uh, rustic, uh, rural picture of Jesus. Any of you remember where this image of Jesus comes from? Yeah, the the TV uh, series, Jesus of Nazareth. Whereas this one comes from India, where Jesus is being depicted as a sort of uh, Indian guru, a teacher. This comes from Cameroon in uh, West Central Africa, uh, part of a whole series of pictures used to help people teach the story of Jesus. And uh, Mark prayed for North Korea, and uh, this uh, is an image that comes from Korea, Jesus carrying, as it were, the Korean Peninsula on his back, bearing the cross, bearing the suffering of the people. From Latin America, Jesus viewed as a sort of subversive person who's challenging, uh, as it were, the status quo. Um, But maybe we're not so familiar with this kind of picture, the angry Jesus. Probably originally from the Philippines and perhaps depicting Jesus turning the money lenders out of the temple. But I don't think we tend to think of Jesus as the angry Jesus. We've been weaned, I think, on images of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the sort of Jesus who wouldn't say boo to a goose. We've been misled by soft, super sensitive pictures of Jesus whose only reason for existence is to make us feel happy. But in the passage that we heard read to us from Luke's Gospel this morning, we discover an exasperated and an angry Jesus. An angry Jesus who cries out, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? And I don't know, maybe you might feel a little uncomfortable with the idea of an angry Jesus because we feel that love and anger are the complete opposites of one another. But sometimes love isn't the opposite of anger. Sometimes the opposite of love is indifference. Sometimes anger can be an expression of love. Sometimes anger can be a response to evil. Sometimes anger can be a sign that something very important is at stake. So who is is Jesus angry with on this occasion as he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and finds the disciples struggling at the foot of the mountain? Is he angry with the disciples because they seem to be unable to bring healing to this boy whose life is disturbed and being destroyed? Is he angry with the crowd who are watching by? Is he angry with the powers of evil that are disturbing and destroying the boy's life? Over the last few weeks, our news has been dominated by discussion about who's going to succeed Theresa May. And over the last few days, the long list of runners and riders has been whittled down to the last two people standing to be elected as the leader of the Tory party and thus prime minister. 
And as we've watched that process unfolding, as the various candidates have been jostling for position, grasping for power, at times maybe we wonder to what extent are their words and actions over recent months designed to promote the good of the nation as a whole, and to what extent their words and actions have been designed simply to promote their own leadership ambitions? Do they want power for its own sake, or do they want power for the good of all, or do they want power just for their benefit of their own tribe? Now, that visible jostling for position, struggling for power, that competitive spirit isn't simply something that we see in the news every day in 2019. We can also see something of that competitive spirit at work in the group of disciples that Jesus was so frustrated with. For if we read the story a little further in Luke chapter 9, we'd find that an argument was starting among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. You see, although Jesus had been trying to teach them that he was the servant Messiah, although he was trying to teach them over and over and over again that he was going to end up suffering and dying upon a cross, the penny still hadn't dropped for the disciples. In spite of everything that Jesus had said, underneath the surface, they were still hoping that Jesus would be the kind of Messiah who would make Israel great again by booting the Roman army of occupation out of the land. And when that happened, the disciples, well, they hoped that Jesus would install them in positions of power in his new divine government. They wanted to be cabinet ministers in the new Jesus uh, government that was going to be coming in. And as we read through Luke's gospel over and over again, we see that the disciples are being portrayed in a rather poor light. For although Peter, James, and John had been up on the top of the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus, <clears throat> although they'd been given a glimpse of God's glory in Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, one incident after another in this chapter reveals their weak faith, their lack of understanding, their striving for position, status, and power, their intolerance of others. It's clear as we watch the story unfold in the Gospels, that the disciples hadn't really bought into the kingdom vision of Jesus. They hadn't really bought into the idea that life in all its fullness involves forgetting self, taking up the cross, and following Jesus on the way of suffering love. They hadn't really bought into the idea that the kingdom of God involves serving God, loving enemies, and overcoming evil with the love that is willing to suffer and die. And because they've not bought into Jesus' kingdom vision, when it comes to confronting the powers of evil that are destroying this boy's life, they're powerless, they're impotent. You see, the problem is not that they don't have the right technique in their prayers. That's not the problem. The problem is that their lives are not in full alignment with God's power and God's plans and God's priorities. And because their lives are not in full alignment with God's power, God's priorities, God's plans, when it comes to confronting evil, they are powerless. 
The next day, when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, a large crowd met Jesus, and a man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. One writer sums up this situation at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration because he says, at the Mount of, at, at the, at, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see the chosen three disciples blinded by the light of God's glory, but at the bottom of the hill, the remaining nine disciples are baffled by the power of darkness. Blinded by the light or baffled by the powers of darkness. And it's in response to this situation, faced with a bunch of disciples who are failing to live out the life of the kingdom of God, that Jesus expresses his anger and frustration. You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Now, just in case you're getting worried, there is actually good news here. And the good news is that that isn't the end of the story. The good news is that even, this, even though this dysfunctional bunch of disciples are baffled, bamboozled by the powers of darkness, even though these disciples are unable to stop the destructive power of evil, their failure does not stop the power of God from working. Because Jesus steps in and he takes authority over the situation, and he brings healing and blessing. Even while the boy was coming, the demons threw him to the ground in a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And then this key phrase, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. That's the main message of the text. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. In spite of all their failures, God had still been able to work. Hallelujah. Now, when we read the Gospels, and as we see the disciples stumbling and faltering and failing over and over again, as we see them over and over again being unable to understand what it really means to be a disciple, it's tempting perhaps for us to breathe a sigh of relief and say, I thank you, God, that we are not like those pathetic disciples. But I wonder how different we really are. Because the reality is that at our hearts, deep down within us, we also find it very difficult to buy into the kingdom vision that Jesus sells. We find it so hard to break away from the ideas of power and success that are so popular in our culture. And it's often the case that there's a competitive spirit that can enter into a church and disrupt the life of the church. And because you and I live and move and have our being in a society that is so individualistic, in a society that's so self-centered, it's difficult for us to believe that life in all its fullness can be found in forgetting self, taking up the cross, and following Jesus on the road of suffering love. 
we find it hard to build our lives on the conviction that evil can be overcome through obedience to God and by relying upon the love and power of God's Holy Spirit. But one of the things that this passage reminds us of is that if we take up the cross, if we follow Jesus, then, like those disciples, we will be caught up into the battle that is continuing between God and the devil, between good and evil. But it also reminds us that whatever evil we encounter, Jesus Christ has the power and authority to overcome that evil. You know, when we look out at our world, and when we see chemical weapons being used uh, against to terrorize innocent civilians, we can see that evil is at work. When we see hundreds of thousands of people being driven from their homes by civil war and being forced to be refugees, we know that evil is at work. When a rich world leaves thousands of children to die every day through hunger and through easily preventable diseases, we know that evil is at work. When people use violent language to stir up hatred against people because they come from another country or come from another ethnic group, we know that evil is at work. When terrorists attack worshippers as they gather for worship on a Sunday morning, we know that evil is at work. One writer says, when, though the issues today may not be the ability to perform an exorcism, the need to trust God and be confident that evil can be overcome is as great today as ever. And if we are to confront that evil, we need to draw upon the powerful resources that God provides, the powerful resources God provides to meet, meet the cosmic forces of darkness face to face. And when we are confronted with evil in whatever form or shape or size it may come, we do not need to be afraid because in the words we used at the beginning of the service, we know that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. And that's why we also had that reading from Ephesians chapter 6 that the children illustrated for us earlier. It's a picture of soldiers standing together, resisting and overcoming evil, using the resources of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, isn't it, because the armor of God described in, in Ephesians is not defeating evil by laser bolts of power. It's using weapons such as truth, weapons such as righteousness, faith, and salvation. It's using the weapons of the Spirit, the Word of God, and prayer. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Stand firm with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, uh, the shield of salvation, the helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, Word of God. These are the resources God offers us, and we need to rely on all of them if we are to resist evil and to overcome evil with good. A few weeks ago, I was at another Baptist assembly up in Telford, Baptist Union, Great Britain, and uh, in a couple of sessions, uh, someone you may have heard of, Graham Kendrick, was leading the worship. And in one of the sessions, he said, 
Um, I'm going to sing a song that's a prayer. And I wonder how many, wonder if there are any people here who haven't heard it, he said. It's this one. Restore, O Lord, the honor of your name in works of sovereign power. Come shake the earth again. And that goes on to say, Though suffering comes and evil crouches near, still our living God is reigning. He is reigning here. And that's the confidence. Though evil crouches near, still our living God is reigning. He is reigning here. Hallelujah. As we follow this episode from Luke's story of account of Jesus' ministry, I suspect we can understand the frustration that Jesus must have felt with these disciples who were so slow to catch on to his kingdom vision. And if we're honest, I suspect there are times when Jesus Christ probably feels frustrated and angry with stumbling, faltering, often half-hearted disciples like me or perhaps like you. But the good news with which we close is the good news that God's grace is bigger than our failure. And the clearest sign that God's grace is bigger than our failure is not simply this story of Jesus healing this troubled child. It is that Jesus didn't abandon his disciples, but he went on to the cross to die for them and to set them free and to break the power of evil and the power of sin and the sin of death. As one writer puts it, Jesus may lament the faithlessness of this generation, but he continues to bear with his disciples and eventually dies for all, even for those who rejected him. And as we reflect on the divine love that we see at the cross, the love that defeats evil and the love that is greater than our failure, we can begin to respond in the words of our next song, which asks this question, who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The King of glory, the King above all kings. And then it goes on to rejoice and declare, this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. You laid down your life that I would be set free. Oh Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. So let's sing together and then we shall pray. Let's stand as we sing and then we can sit together to pray.
Would you please be seated as we pray for a few moments together? And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. 